Identity Talk. I'm your host, Jana Lopez. Thank you for sharing your time with me. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about uncovering meaning about who we are and how we come to see ourselves. Words and identity are my life. I'm the author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. I teach online writing workshops called Write About Now and offer one-on-one transformative coaching sessions that break you through to deeper clarity and connection with yourself through a guided process I call See Through Words. When it comes to navigating identity funky junk, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope mixed with humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. All right. Well, welcome to Identity Talk, everyone. Glad you're here. My guest with me today is a friend of mine and an interesting person in the world, I think I wanted to have him on because he is uh, the funeral home manager at Riverview Abbey, and he's been a mortician and in this business for 10 years. And I was thinking I would have Tim Proctor on because we've had conversations about death and his work and what it entails and I think it's a fascinating subject, and I, I also think that people are talking about death and having conversations about death these days, and I don't know. I just thought it would be cool to to chat, so uh, thanks, Tim, for being with me. My pleasure. I have conversations about <laughs> death every day, so <laughs> Yes, you do, and you probably have conversations uh, about death from multiple perspectives, I would imagine. Tell me a little bit about what those perspectives on death would be. What hats or roles would you have to fulfill in a death category, I guess? Of course, every circumstance is a little different, but it recently, I mean, I can say that there's a lot of psychiatrist and psych, uh, social worker type things, families that are traumatized, uh, uh, say, regarding infant death or murder or something like that. And you have, you know, you have to help them within a a day or so of the event. And, uh, you know, in order to get things done properly, there's a lot of uh, just trying to read the room as they approach you and figure out the best way to do that. Because some people, you know, shut down completely and some people just need to talk and talk and talk and, and you just need to listen. So um, it's, uh, there's a lot of the counselor type role, uh, going on. And, um, and then, uh, of course, if embalming is involved, that's a whole separate thing that you have to deal with and explain to them. And, uh, that's something else that we do. And so, um, and then you have to be a salesman, you know, with caskets and, and cremation services and whatever, whatever it is that they might need. So, uh, you kind of juggle all those things and, and, uh, just, uh, at the same time, try and make them feel like they can take a breath for the first time, maybe in, in a, a couple of days, that you're going to help them out with some of the important stuff and, and uh, that they can uh, deal with each other instead of uh, having to deal with the government or whatever it might be right now. Do you find that people are more afraid to talk about 
death in our culture and in our society until the time comes? I mean, are do you are people wanting to talk to you when they know what you do? Do they open up? Or are they curious? Or are they more afraid? Some do. It's not that common. I think most people don't want to talk about it unless, I mean, other than, you know, about movies or something like that, but, but uh, they don't want to deal with it firsthand until the time comes. And even then they don't really want to deal with it. That's, you know, kind of where we step in and, and guide them. The ones that do ask me about it, they just want to know about my job specifically, not about death. Generally speaking, usually, you know, they want to know details about how you cream people or whatever. Yeah, we're going to get there too. <laughs> <laughs> but about death in general, what is it about death that is so like an enigma, so fascinating yet mysterious and sort of taboo? It's an interesting topic because it has all of those things embedded into it. What do you think it is about death? Of course, there's the great unknown Everybody has their own beliefs about what happens after you, you, uh, life leaves your body. And so, uh, for some people, uh, death is comforting, you know, when their loved one has been suffering or something like that, and they want to know that they're in a better place now and they're with their maker. And so there's that, but, uh, I have to deal with a lot of deep religious entrenchment sometimes. And, uh, so there's very specific guidelines that have been passed down through families that that they expect to uh, be adhered to uh, when, when a family member passes, because that's what happened to their mother and their grandmother. And could you give me a couple examples? Cause that's interesting to me. Catholic services, uh, Greek Orthodox services will have uh, what they call a trision, which is where a body is taken to the church the evening before. And there's, blessings said and and the priest is there and the family's there and uh that's something that's important to the family that it takes place it has to take place the night before the service and then there's hindu and uh east indian services sometimes that have to take place within 24 hours of death they need to try and get a disposition a burial or cremation done and that can be very challenging. Um, there are permits to get in place and things like that. So I've had to deal with some very frantic family members uh, trying to get some things done in order to be right with their God. You know, they don't want to screw it up for their yeah. loved one. I mean, I think that would be a lot of pressure on you, but I would also think that's an honor to, yeah. It is. Normally, it's not uh, a problem. I mean, sometimes you just have to move things a little bit. It varies state to state because the laws are different, but you have to know the medical certifier for the death certificate that's going to be filed uh, before you can get a permit for a burial or a cremation or something like that. So it can be difficult because you have to get through to the doctor's office and confirm with them a lot of times that uh, they're the ones who are going to sign it. If you don't have that information, you can't legally print a permit to do a cremation or something. And if somebody passes away on a Friday evening and, you know, you think you're going to get a hold of that doctor before Monday morning, you know, it's, it's nuts. And so sometimes you have to find backdoors and alternate medical, you know, certifiers and things like that. So that's some of the ins and outs that we try and deal with, um, you know, for, to help families cope with this stuff. So tell me about the honor part of it, because that's the logistics. How do you feel 
let's say you have a family and it does mean everything for them to know that they adhered to the tradition or ritual or value of their culture and you know you're able to make it happen what's what's that feel like what's that about um it's nice especially when they know that uh you know i may not share the same faith that they do or something but they know that i'm willing to put myself in the in the forefront to to get everything I can done for them as if I was a member of the family. That's kind of how I try and think about it. Uh, it makes me feel very nice. And, and uh, it's really an honor when the family comes back, uh, you know, and says, well, you know, of course we came back. We, we've used you in the past and we thought you did a great job. And, and, or, you know, we, you, we've half my family is here or something, or, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks that come to my funeral home are there because they have family in our mausoleum there. And it's just a tradition for that's been passed through the generations. I mean, are some days harder than others, like with the emotional or the uh, the component of what gives you the, the the honor and the stress? The same thing. Do you do? You, are some days better than others? Yeah, there are some families or family members that can that can make uh, that can be a little more robust. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but it's understandable. I mean, you got you have to realize that they're going through probably, you know, the toughest time or one of the toughest times ever that they may ever deal with. And they need you there to, you know, answer some questions. And some of them have been planning things for years and just want to make sure it gets done exactly right. And um, on the other hand, I think a lot of, not a lot, but uh, some families too will, I, I get the feeling that perhaps they're catching up suddenly, like they they realize that they should have been maybe taking care of some of these things. And, and I think that that's where some of the family spats can come from that we have to deal with too. Uh, latent guilt from not spending enough time with them when they were in convalescence or something like that can, can really weigh on somebody after they die. And I, and it's not uncommon to have somebody flying out to see their, their family member who they've just been informed is at death's door and missing it by a couple of hours. And that can be even worse than, you know, them having been there when they passed. You've had those scenarios. Yeah. Sure. (laughs) A lot. Yeah. Do people talk about their guilt in, in those moments? Not in those terms. I, I just kind of ascertain that from their facial expressions and their tone of voice. And, um, And it's not to say that they're, you know, bad children. They weren't there at their mom's side of me, you know, that they were trying, but uh, you could just see that sometimes they feel like, uh, like they should have done more, they could have done more or uh, something along those lines. Um, I've also had cases where siblings or family members have completely opposite ideas of what should happen with the person. And um, if it's, if the spouse has passed and the the right of disposition goes to the children, and if there's more than one child, then I have to listen to both of them and try and figure out the best way to to you know if you know like a literal case I had a few years ago was one where uh, a couple of brothers were taking care of uh, their mother. One of them wanted a cremation, and one of them wanted her to be buried. They were uh, a bit estranged, and the uh, one who wanted her to be uh, buried said, look, don't listen to my brother. I'm the one with the money. He doesn't even have a job. I'm paying for everything. So you're going to do what I ask you to do. And it's like, well, that makes sense. And then the other brother 
comes to me, he says, the reason I don't have a job is I've been taking care of my mother for the last few years while he's out doing whatever he does. And so I'm, I'm the one she wanted to handle this stuff, you know, so that's a dilemma you have to, you know, try and. So what did you do? What, how did that one get resolved? I told them that I wasn't going to get in the middle of their family feud, A, and they needed to sort it out, but it had to be uh, what we ended up doing, um, sort of meeting them halfway. We did a cremation and placed the urn where the casket would have went. And, you know, but it was just one of those things that, you know, know what's coming at you when you get up in the morning, but, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's that, and sometimes it's, uh, you know, something in the prep room, which is where we do embalming. That's that sort of thing would stress me out more than dealing with families. I'm, I'm really uh, mostly able to turn it off at the end of the day when I come home and not let it bother me or anything. That's one of the reasons I think I'm suited to this kind of job is that, uh, you know, I can deal with it every day and it doesn't keep me awake at night. You know, you know, I do empathize and sympathize with these families, of course, but but I also realize what my role is in the whole thing. And, and uh, so, you know, I'm a big part of their life for a week, you know, or whatever, or two weeks. And then I might never talk to them again, or it might be years. Try not to let that stuff bother me. Things that would, you know, that I might take home with me would be, you're going to have a viewing or something and you're, and you're embalming somebody and they're just in a condition that's difficult to get them to a, what you would consider to be a, what I would consider to be a, a you know, viewable and uh, or you just think it could have come come better and like from accidents and stuff no it's i mean you just never can tell even from somebody's physical appearance but uh, it's more i mean i don't see a whole lot of trauma cases where i am I, you know i when when i went through schooling and stuff I, saw, I dealt with a lot of that and and i do still get cases like that for sure but most of them are retired or elderly people and and so they've had a 90 years to destroy their bodies with cholesterol <laughs> or whatever it might be that makes it difficult to get. Huh? I don't want to get too graphic for your show here. Well, no, I mean, I'm interested in this. Good distribution of chemicals throughout their venous system so that, you know. No, I mean, this is um, interesting. A lot of people don't yeah. know what happens. Uh, if you want me to talk about embalming for a second, I could do that. Yeah, please do. Sure, I, I don't know. Sure. It's generally speaking, it's the removal of a person's blood via their artery, uh, excuse me, their vein and replacement with uh, chemicals and sometimes water through the artery. And it's a germicidal process and a preservative process that help people for stay looking better for viewings and things like that. It's uh, prolongs the inevitable, but uh, it's... How long does it last? Well, we have a little control over that. Usually try not to schedule viewings too far out because uh, even with good distribution of your chemicals and things it's uh on the outside a couple of weeks but we try and get everything done inside of a week it could be almost indefinite if you use you know strong enough index which is the formaldehyde content you could preserve somebody for a long time we're a small funeral home and we don't have that much room to just keep people there (laughs) i was gonna say that's also a little weird i mean yeah so as far as the uh the process goes we have a little bit of control over whether, and because some some you know directors prefer or embalmers prefer having a little bit of softness to the skin. Some want just you know rock hard so that uh, there's no way that anybody could screw it up. You know if they wanted to. Just... How many people want open caskets and viewings, like percentage wise? I I always personally felt it was a little weird, and I remember seeing my first 
open casket. I was like in my 20s. I don't think I had seen somebody and it was quite bizarre. It was like time stopping still Mm -hmm. walking up and seeing somebody there. And it's not them. It doesn't feel like them. It sort of looks like a facsimile or a representation of them. But considering they're dead, I mean, it's quite remarkable that you can preserve some form of them. Yeah. Uh, My first experience with it was similar. Uh, My grandmother and uh, first open casket I ever went to as a teenager, uh, long before I ever had any thoughts of doing anything like this. I remember that my uncle, her son, got very upset when he saw her in the casket and was saying, this isn't my mother. Who is this? And was, you know, I mean, kind of in shock. And uh, I could see why. I mean, it was definitely her, but she was a plump woman. And this woman in the casket was very gaunt and withdrawn and, and which is, uh, you know, can happen rapidly at the end of your life uh, sometimes. And so I remember his reaction. And that's something that has kind of guided me as an embalmer throughout my career. We always ask for a recent picture and, you know, try and keep with that. Yeah, it's it's strange. Um, for you to say it's strange, it must really be strange because I think it's strange. Yeah, well, and, and you would ask if it's if it's common, and yeah, it's expected in like Catholic services. It's part of the service at the beginning. There's usually a viewing. Um, we set it up normally. Uh, we get to know all the churches, the Catholic churches in the area. This is I'm just I mean we do much more than Catholic services, but just speak about that. We set it up so that. If you want to view the person, you can, but you're not forced to necessarily. So, you know, some people don't want their kids to bother or or uh, they might be too upset or something like that. That's also a last snapshot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's why that's so profound is when you see somebody that way, that is the last snapshot. And I do you want that to be the last thing you remember of that person is is that snapshot or is it one of when they're alive? And, you know, that's an interesting. I've had families that I could tell were very upset. They they were with their family member at the hospital when they died or, or at the home or wherever it might have been. And, um, you know, they were saying, oh, it was so awful. Just had all these tubes in them and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm so, so glad that that's not happened. And so I'll tell them, you know, if I've already seen the person, know that it's a, a possibility. I'll say, well, why don't you come and see him one more time. He doesn't have all those tubes in anymore. Oh, no, no. You know, and they just kind of get horrified by it, but then uh, convince them to come see them. And when they see them for the last time, person's eyes are closed, their head is resting on a pillow with a quilt over them. and, And it really gives them the peace that they were missing. That made me feel. That's beautiful. Yeah. And it's not that difficult to do. It takes, you know, it's like, you can just wait a few minutes. Let me, let me get this done for you. And so I, I definitely do that if in some cases, and then just the opposite in other cases, there'll be times when they want to see him one more time and have to go, you're not going to get the closure that you're looking for. I'll let you see him if you, if you insist, but I really think that your memories, you know, might be better suited to be your last visage of them. So that's your experience and intuitive call at the moment? Yeah. I mean, everything I do is, uh, as far as arrangements is intuitive, I think, because people react so differently mm-hmm. to the death. Some people, uh, no kidding, come in chuckling and laughing and, oh God, dad would have loved that, you know, and everything is, is kind of funny. And not that, 
you know, funny that the person has passed, but, you know, they're obviously glad that he's not suffering anymore or whatever. But, you know, if dad was a joker or whatever, you know, or they've always joked that he'd be late to his own funeral. You know, I hear all those <laughs> many, many times, all the all the death jokes you can think, dying to get in there and all that. Um, but uh, parade. Uh, so, yeah. And so you know, they've already got their guard down a little bit and you know that maybe, you know, and I can adapt to that. I'm, you know, can joke around. I can also be very solemn and serious. And sometimes that's what you have to do. And I, the reason I know this is because I've made the mistake both ways of being, you know, it's, it's more of a problem when try and crack the ice a little bit and you get that look like, how dare you say that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, Oh, okay. This is not going to be one of those. It was one of those dead jokes. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. It landed. (laughs) But where there's just, you know, why, why are you even smiling sort of, right, you know, right. What, right, so. um, that's interesting. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that in that moment of the, do you or don't you say goodbye in that way? And um, that moment, either you, you take up that moment or that moment goes and you're, you're just going to always wonder and linger in that. So that's, that's really uh quite powerful actually do you feel like people want to do what they think is right because of the person who's died or because they need to absolve themselves of their own entanglements it's both usually in both for everybody with the ratio varying quite a bit but most people just want to have a dignified disposition of their loved one it's uh, especially these last several months, it's difficult to get a large family together to come out. And even if we, even if you could get everybody on a plane, which is potentially very dangerous and come out to see, you know, be with each other, that doesn't mean that they could have a real funeral in a church or at a cemetery right now or anything. What is that looking like now? How are people doing it? First, when when the stuff started getting when people started really taking it seriously a couple months ago and they started getting mandates handed down from the governor as far as crowd sizes and things like that, then uh, my first couple of services that I had, people either underestimated or just didn't know or lied about how many people were going to be there. And it sounded like it was going to be manageable and it got a little bit uh, bigger than maybe they should have. Everybody's getting much better about it now. It's becoming much more, you know, it's sinking in more or less that, you know, you just can't have big parties and stuff right now. Like I did one church service not too long ago where the family had to give them the name of every single person who was going to be there. And I had a checklist at the door and I was checking people off. And if they weren't on the list, they didn't get in, even if they were the grandson or whatever it was. But everybody, nobody tried to get in that wasn't on the list and and nobody was that would suck to have to be a bouncer too yeah yeah that's i was i was i mean i was fortunately it was one of those families that that was uh you know had a bit of a sense of humor and i did make a bouncer joke about it at one point but uh, so glad you picked up on that too that's exactly (laughs) can be so people can how many people can gather for a funeral what's the number at the moment 25 i think right now 20 yeah and so uh the churches that I've dealt with recently and our chapel uh, at Riverview Abbey, we've got every other pew marked off according to the guidelines. The uh, If you share a domicile, you can sit together. So, I mean, if it's a family of four or five, they can all be on a pew together. But then we're just encouraging people to try and 
not be jerks, you know, I mean, just try and stay within the guidelines so we can all get through it because it's not easy or, or fun for anybody. And, and, you know, I don't want to have to be like you said, a bouncer or, or uh, come down and go, Hey, Hey, there's too many people here. Somebody's going to have to go, you know, but, but I mean, I don't see something like that being cracked down on, but we would sure hate for anybody to get ill because of it, you know, so I got to think about that too. Have you had any COVID deaths? Not that I need to know the details, but has anybody, have have you had to deal with somebody who has passed away from it? Sure. Yeah. A few. They've all, as far as I know, they've all been cremations. Even at that point, I mean, we, we wear plenty of protective gear and, and, you know, viruses generally require a living host. So, you know, we still would cover the face of a decedent um, when they're being embalmed, you know, because there's still possible uh, possibility of expulsion of air from the lungs or something like that. So, or, or fluids or something like that, but, uh, but it's not very common and I haven't had to deal with it much where I am yet, fortunately, but we do get checked, uh, you know, every time we go to a hospital to drop off a death certificate, even they take your temperature and, and uh, nobody's letting you in to visit or, or go to the clinics or anything. They, you know, they have somebody up front. I mean, hopefully you haven't had to go to many hospitals lately, but I do it every other day. And so get used to just getting your temperature taken and dropping it off at the front and hoping your paperwork gets to where it needs to go. Fortunately, uh, a lot of doctors uh, on death certificates sign electronically and uh, it's something that we've been um, encouraging them to do because it saves time uh, from driving around, dropping off a piece of paper at a clinic and dropping, driving back out there and picking it up. And That seems like unnecessary. Ho- hoping it's filled out correctly and intact and all that stuff. Right. Um, so if you can get them on board to sign with your thumbprint at your computer, then it's, it saves a lot of time. And this uh, pandemic has actually kind of fostered a new movement to, for doctors to step up and do that. There's, uh, it's something that they've been dragging their feet in Oregon for for a long time. All the doctors in Washington are on are already doing this, and just a, a fraction of them in Oregon are. What's one of the weirdest things in your perspective that you've seen? Because the body is really weird. When you were describing the lungs getting rid of some air after the fact, I'm, there's so much I don't know about death and what happens to the body. <laughs> and there's so much I don't want to know. And my, I, it's funny because my husband, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm thinking I, I would just want to die. Everybody wants to die in their sleep and have it be peaceful. And you've got this sort of vision of it all. And then he said something about like shitting yourself after you're dead, like your body starts to do these really weird things. And I did not know. And I thought, oh, my God. So even in your in your afterlife, you have to worry about like how you're showing up because something embarrassing could occur. So what is well, I don't know anything really about the human (laughs) body, like what it does. But like, what's one of the weirdest things you think you've you've seen? Hmm, That is a good question. Well, first of all, if I can address the <laughs> shitting yourself issue, it's a no, it's a common, uh, I wouldn't even call it a myth because it definitely happens, uh, yeah. but it's not an automatic thing by any means. And I would even <laughs> So there's so a far, chance it won't happen? <laughs> I would say there's a strong chance it won't happen. Yeah. Okay, thank uh, you. Uh, most people don't. So Okay, um, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> now, the ones that do sometimes don't stop. I mean, it just... Okay, I was feeling better. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll cut it off there, but... No, I mean, that's uh, fascinating. Um, so it just keeps coming out. It just excretes and excretes and... 
one of the parts that you know isn't really uh, highlighted in school, you know, that uh, is that you do have to have to deal with stuff like that. I mean, there's sights and smells that are just ghastly, you know, but sure. And the idea is to force all that out if possible. And you want to get as much moisture out of the body as you can. Uh, and so if, if you see that that's going to be an issue, you just deal with it right away. And uh, we, we keep a big stack of diapers in the prep room for when we're done, you know, if necessary. And there's <clears throat> other methods for, you know, keeping that sort of thing from being a problem too, but I won't go into that. I don't know about weird. Um, I mean, if eyeballs falling out or things falling off or limbs or. Yeah. I, uh, it used to be when someone is a, a good amount of cases, they're, uh, donors and if nothing else, they'll donate the, uh, lenses from their eyes. And so there's a service that will pick them up at the hospital, take care of the removal of the, the lens, and then that service will deliver the person to our care. It used to be that they would replace the eyes with these little plastic balls and stuck it in there. And, and so that was a little weird having, you know, because those could pop out or, or something. And they're too small to, you know, if usually you'd have to build them up and, you know, or something like that to, uh, to try and get a more natural shape there you know that doesn't really qualify as weird when everything else okay here's something that's a little bit odd that people might not realize i mean i'm used to it now so i guess i didn't didn't really jump out at me as weird but when uh you're a full-on donor uh where you know a full body donation where they might take everything from you know your blood to your eyes to the uh, marrow in your bones and so when they do that, uh, they are what we call a long bone donor, which means they're taking the bones from your legs and uh, you know, your arms uh, for the marrow. And when the body is uh, released from the hospital, what they do is a, a quick sew. They just do these large stitches just to keep the skin back together. And then we do a, a, an autopsy repair, they call it, where we make the person, you know, more presentable and, and more like they were in, in life, but they replace the bones with PVC pipe in chunks that they just lay in there oh. for, yeah, for rigidity. So that, I mean, because no bones, I mean, <laughs> there's no structure to your, your, you know, body, you know? So the first time that I had to deal with that and you open somebody up and you just see what looks like is running under your house, you know, for, That's weird. for your kitchen or something that, yeah, it is. And so, but, uh, and then when we get the body together, you know, we do our embalming and various things that we do to, to preserve the body. We put those, we clean up the pipes and we put them back in there and, and so that uh, you can get them dressed and into a casket. Interesting. Yeah. Never knew that. Do you get questions about ghosts and paranormal stuff? And tell me, yeah, tell me about that. What's that like? Because I think I've been to your mausoleum. We, I was there one night. And you gave me a tour and it was just very uh, weird, I think, being in an environment yeah. like that. But, you know, you wonder what you hear, see, feel, think, what what goes bump in the night. What do you what's your experience of that? First of all, I had the mausoleum that you're referring to. It's got about somewhere over 30,000 people there in caskets and cremations. It's, you know, it's niches and crypts. And so it's large and 
So that's what I get questions, not because I'm a funeral director, but because I work at a mausoleum. I get a lot of from from people saying, do you ever ever hear ghosts or do you ever they ever follow you home or whatever? The answer is no, I don't. And I haven't. But I have the uh, unique perspective of having been there in that mausoleum at night by myself um, in a raging storm on Halloween at midnight a few years back. And I figure if I wasn't going to be throttled by a ghoul <laughs> or something, then it probably isn't going to happen. Not to say that, that they're not there. That's what I'm saying, but that's not to say that. I guess my rejoinder would be, that means that the bodies here are at peace. Right. You know, if, uh, if that's what, if that's how you view, uh, you know, the, uh, a person's soul or essence, um, as possibly not being at rest and, uh, I don't see evidence of that where I am. So, of course, it's a big place and it's been around for over 100 years. So they're settling from time to time. That's what I tell myself <laughs> when I hear a noise and I know that. I like so settling I in air quotes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, nothing that's really made my hairs on my neck stand up or anything. So that's no lie that I was there at midnight on Halloween a few years ago. It was an emergency call from somebody that had to know something that I had to look up from there. And it was a night that was so rainy that they, uh, you know, cars were stalling out in the deep puddles and stuff. It was just crazy, you know, night. And so I, I figured that's, that's prime time, you know, and, uh, it just didn't happen. was open to it. And if they were there, they didn't want me to know about it or. They were ghouls in the <laughs> night. They were behind your, they were partying yeah. behind your back or whatever. Maybe. I heard something, a friend of mine told me something about like, vaults leaking and caskets popping open and like stuff gases or something after the bodies um is that true can be not so much caskets popping open i don't i don't know of any of that ever happening but maybe i'm transposing something well what can happen and what i've seen happen is bodies that uh or caskets that leak uh if a body isn't thoroughly embalmed or if uh, there's extenuating circumstances and it takes a long, long time for the decaying process to happen. There was, when I first started where I am, uh, there was a, this is going to be awful, but there was a odor that was clearly decomposition coming from a large corridor and it was uh, pretty pungent. And the uh, the guys that figured it out didn't know specifically where it was coming from because they couldn't get close enough to it without gagging. And so uh, I volunteered to help because I'm a little more accustomed to those uh, sort of things and found exactly where it was coming from. I mean, pinpointed the location, but it was coming from up higher and we, they actually were able to locate it because... Uh, uh, because I found it, you know, with my nose and, and there was a casket that had had a little bit of a leak and had started to come down and they, you know, they found it and uh, were able to seal the whole thing off and get everything cleaned up properly. But, but uh, that, I mean, just a, one person can, you know, ruin it for everybody there. Um, <laughs> and, and we don't have a hundred percent control over that because I don't embalm everybody that goes in our mausoleum. You know, we get them from other funeral homes and, and things. And this particular one was, was years old and it just, something happened. I guess the, the metal in the casket finally eroded enough or something 
for it to allow uh, something to seep out. And so it was unfortunate, but I mean, we took care of it, but it was pretty nasty. So it does happen. Yeah. And, and in fact, uh, decomposition isn't even the worst smell that I, that we deal with. I would probably say that is uh, tissue gas, which is something that um, happens to a lot of people after they die, especially if it's hot where they are or something like that. Um, bubbles can form on the skin and, and uh, man, that's a smell that's not for beginners at all. That that'll <laughs> if you can get past that, you've got this job down. You know that's it. That's uh, about as about as good as it gets. I could see what it would be like in a mortician's conference comparing notes on tissue bubble <clears throat> smell. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, I, I had to marry somebody in the industry in order to you know be able to have a normal home life too, <laughs> so that we can talk about. I mean, she's not anymore, but uh, she was at the time. And uh, uh, so I can definitely talk about my day without phasing her one bit, you know, um, if, if I want. So that's nice. But uh, you do have to be careful in general public if, if you're used to just being around other people at your work or in the business, because if you can say something is very casual to you and, you know, <laughs> just, you know whoops. oh, yeah. Don't bring that up at dinner. Freak somebody yeah. out. Um, what do you think it is about death that informs life? Because, you know, the what I talk about is how people come to see themselves. And even in my own book, I wrote Me, Myself, and I. Saying I skirted the whole issue of death because I was writing this book as a place of like midlife grief and loss and identity. And I think it's about the time when people start thinking about death, maybe a little bit more. And for me, I couldn't really even broach the topic. It was kind of a slapsticky version, some somewhat, because I couldn't really internalize it. But I did have this moment. I'm in a creative writing MFA program and working with this amazing mentor. His name is Brandon Shimoda, oh, a beautiful writer. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got to this place within my writing with him after working with him for almost a year where I had this meditation where I, I don't know, I'll even know what to describe it, but I had a moment where I was feeling the grief and internalizing the feeling of my own death, which I never had done before. And it was quite powerful and significant. And it makes me wonder what it is about death that informs life. So what have you learned about that? What, what do you see death does in terms of informing who we are in life? I think that it would probably depend on your upbringing. A lot of families probably have traditions. Uh, I know that take care of their loved ones um, kind of indicates how, uh, how they expect themselves to be handled later on. That's what I would assume. And so some people view it as a very reverent, uh, it's a passage to, you know, the next plane. And, and, uh, so they want everything to be flowery and shiny and, and, uh, pretty and, and expensive, you know, I mean, surrounded by flowers and, and friends, others, they just want to do the paperwork and get it done. And I don't think that they most people really, really think about it. I encourage people whenever they're in there taking care of their loved ones and if they're having difficulty, you know, I, I encourage them to come back when or, or find a, a funeral director or, or home at some point and take care of their own arrangements while they're, while they're still, while, while they're not having to, you know, 
deal with an illness of their own or something like that. Don't wait for your spouse to be on hospice before you, you know, you come in and start dealing with that stuff because it's a lot more stressful when they're at, uh, when they're near that. And, um, but as far as the, uh, informing their, the identity, it would be through tradition more than anything. What I see the most is, uh, people that have a religious expectation set out for them and they're told what's, what's going to happen after they die. And, uh, so that's what they expect. But I, I don't think that most people really think about it too much day to day, unless somebody they know is, is ailing normally see a lot of uh frustration and you know rushing around and and people that get upset over things that that uh don't matter really again i think sometimes it's the guilt of maybe you know a perceived guilt uh, not necessarily owed guilt but but uh you know they just might feel that they should have done more and so i would hope that that they would want to maybe realize that that they still have other people in their lives that they could spend more time with and and don't want to have to feel that way again. It's an interesting point because what you're saying in some ways is do people have the conversation about gratitude or regret? The way you're describing it, it's like in this moment, in this time and in this place and where we are, we do have a choice in that while we can. Yeah, I think to the majority of the families that I work with seem to have a good and healthy relationship with themselves and their mortality. I am starting to get to where I think about it a little more as far as myself. I was just going to ask you about you. <laughs> That's... Um, I just, I, I'm, I'm now old enough to get a free Coke at Carl's Jr., you know, so the thought of my own passing does cross my mind from time to time, but I get asked a lot, well, what are you doing? You know, how, how, how have you set yourself up? You know, and, and to be honest, I checked the donor box on my driver's license and that's all I've done so far. Well, And I don't think it's about the logistics, but I think the emotional component is interesting. I mean, it sounds like you're just starting to open the door on this idea of internalization for yourself. What I, I mean, as far as it affects me personally, I watched these people whose family members I take care of. And, and I think about, you know, I put myself in, in their place, you know, obviously I realize that, uh, you know, I want to, it, it kind of inspires me to want to, uh, take care of myself and live longer and maybe, uh, not be a workaholic or, or whatever it might be, or to, you know, pursue artistic goals or, or, you know, things outside of, uh, the funeral biz too. So it's not just the families that, that kind of reevaluate their priorities when they're dealing with this stuff. I do it daily now. I mean, I don't feel gloom and doom that, you know, that uh, the Grim Reapers wait. That's great. I mean, that's beautiful. But uh, uh, it's an unexpected uh, perk to to the job is, you know, I get to kind of see what would happen if I, you know, went, took another path or something to go, okay, I I don't want to make people, go through that when I go, you know, so that's pretty cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think it is. I think that's what we're here for. If whatever, however it comes, you know, as long as it comes and we have a chance to reflect on it and evaluate it and make it our own mm-hmm. because everybody's path of 
sort of arriving to who they want to be in this world and who they want to be beyond this world, whatever that means, I think is part of the identity thing. So, yeah, well, it is nice to guide people through that. And I, I, um, you know, I've been kind of joking around a little bit here, you know, as an, as an atheist or whatever, but to me, I think, think it kind of gives me uh, a little bit of a, a bump above somebody who might say be a, a Mormon or a Presbyterian or whatever it might be, because I'm, I don't have locked in ideas about what I think God is or, or should be or anything like that. And so I'm very malleable to every family that comes in. And, uh, you know, I just try and stay up to date on you know, whatever the Pope's latest decrees are, you know, then, and that changes, believe it or not. I mean, uh, 30 years ago, you weren't allowed to cremate at all uh, if you were a Catholic, and now you can, but you can't scatter or bring the urn home, that sort of thing. And I'm sure that that's slowly going to be watered down even further at some point. Uh, it's just uh, time marching on, and uh, cremation is just much more common and popular and cheaper and faster. And so it's just going to be the way that things get done. This has been a very inspiring conversation. Is there anything you want to add about life or death, Tim Proctor, mm -hmm. mortician, Riverview, Abbey, guest friend and interesting conversation? Anything you want to add or talk about life or death? Well, uh, I would just say that if you take care of yourself, and take care of those around you. And when the time comes, then you're not going to need to worry about it anyway. So no, I uh, honestly, I think that as far as death, I don't have like a, a set thing, you know, because uh, I try to be available to what people need to, to hear. And so my advice would be to, uh, if you are in a position where you know what you want to do or you know what you want to happen to you when you die, write it down and give it to somebody that you care about or put it somewhere that it will be safe. Because uh, while uh, we're not obligated by law to follow that, it's really nice to have a guide set up by the person um, ahead of time. Uh, a lot of stress comes from people going, I don't know what she wanted or uh, you know, she said, maybe do this or maybe do that. And if you if you've written down exactly what you want, um, then it's helpful. And it's one or 10 less things for your uh, loved one to, yeah. to deal with. when That's you go. Good. And uh, if you can go somewhere and pay for it and get it set up ahead of time, so much better. I mean, you lock in the prices and your family can just worry about themselves and not deal with all the other stuff. So um, I would recommend doing that, too. And if you ever have any concerns about it, uh, every funeral home I know has at least one director on staff who will be more than happy to just sit and chat with you for a little while, um, just to kind of help you get through whatever it is that's bothering you. That's good. That's good to know. That's really yeah. good to know. Thank you for your conversation and your time. And yeah. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I've had a fantastic time. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. For questions or comments, reach me at janalopez.com. And when you're having a moment of identity doubt, just remember that seeing is relieving.